I think one of the things that I've learned from studying technology over the last 20 or so years is that um, people trump technology all the time. This episode will be split into two parts for your listening pleasure. After part one, tune into part two to hear the end of this episode. Thank you. Welcome to the Six Feet Apart podcast. I'm your co-host, Joelle, along with Lucy and Ahmed. Check out our Instagram at six underscore feet underscore apart and our Twitter at six apart. And for other inquiries, email us at sixfeetapartpodcast at gmail.com, six as in six I-X. So, today's episode is going to be about the use of technology during quarantine and the impact of the media on our views of the world, the possible effects of coming out of quarantine without that regular human interaction outside of family, and everything that comes with spending a surplus amount of time at home. So I want to start with the stigma that a lot of young people face and young people being millennials and Gen Z, which in which they have a technological addiction. So I have had experience with, with this in my high school and about once every six months in the first semester and the second semester, they would play documentaries pertaining to us and about our lives and how to be safe. And one movie was called Screenagers. And this documentary followed a lot of students who showed signs, quote unquote, of technological addictions in which they were on their devices for about seven hours a day. And this was back in 2016. In my school, a lot of people would make jokes about it and kind of just call each other screenagers, not taking it seriously, because the majority of us would spend seven plus hours a day of scream time, and that was very much normal. So according to the movie, 29% of teens reported on being screens for more than seven hours a day. Eight-year-olds who have their own smartphones jumped in just about four years from 11% to 19%, but for teens ages 13 to 18, screen time has gone up by 42 minutes over the past four years. So... Yeah, a lot of people in my school definitely weren't seeing a problem with that and kind of just joshing around as usual. But now I think we're starting to see that it's definitely intergenerational with everyone having a similar experience with transitioning to technology for online work, communication, learning, and social interaction. So throughout this episode, we have four interviewees that we asked about varying topics on social media, technology, and its use during COVID-19. The first question we asked is, is our comfort with technology or our ability to adapt a generational thing or personal thing? I recently interviewed Brendan Smith about this, who is a second-year PhD student at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information, and has done research in the study of technological burnout and research overload, where people feel overwhelmed in new technological environments. This is what he had to say. I mean, I mean, for so long, all we heard about millennials and Zoomers was they're always on their phones, you know, they're technologically addicted, even though that's not necessarily a, a, a medical 
upturn to be technologically or, or internet addicted. It's not really something that can be verified. But there's been a lot of pathologization about how people use technologies, right? Oh, you need less screen time. You need to think more about how you're communicating online for your own mental wellness um, or general wellness. But we don't really think about how, uh, how crucial or critical technology has become to the point where it's kind of naive to ask young people or even now any people um, to disconnect. He goes on to talk about how our generation is the blueprint of technological innovations and online etiquette, which is very important to learn in an increasingly digital age. So we've done an incredible job adapting to this. And he even goes a step further to suggest that we're moving out of this idea of it only being a generational thing in terms of young people or millennials and Generation Z being just stuck on this stigma of only using technology for interaction and not, it not being healthy. Yeah, I think it's really interesting to kind of view our generation and the generation after us and before us as like the blueprint for technological development because we really are the people who are growing up with so many forms of communication technology and what we choose to do with it will affect our children's generation and all the generations to come. But I think this time has been really good for us to find healthier ways of using that technology. Um, and I also, I talked to Jeffrey Bose, who is an associate professor at U of T's Faculty of Information. And he talked about how, even though there's this stigma that young people are just so isolated and so antisocial and everything because of technology, it hasn't really been... Like in the past, we didn't have a perfect society where everyone was best friends with their neighbors and talked to everyone they saw. Um, so here's what he had to say. The other thing is that there's a kind of like a trend where there's these new technologies where people say like, oh, it used to be so much better. Remember back in the old days where everyone was this wonderful mm -hmm. community and they all had these supportive relationships and so on. But if you just go a little bit back in history, you know, it wasn't always that harmonious. I mean, it's never really been that harmonious with people. There's always been tensions between different groups of people. Definitely things probably have changed in terms of the way people interact socially, but that's not only necessarily due to this technology, but just the fact that, that there's a rise of the suburbs where people are, you know, people who live in the suburbs, they have to drive everywhere, which really limits their chances for interacting with others and so on. Yeah, everybody was like, oh yeah, America used to be better in the good old days. And I'm like... Can you be specific, please? <laughs> like, I, what was better? I mean, maybe, maybe the sense of community was better, but it sounds like based on um, Bo's argument that we're just interacting online, like just manifesting it into our online interactions rather than just having it in person. So instead of ignoring someone, like with reading a book, you would just ignore them by using your phone. I think what he's trying to say is we have the same human tendencies that we've always had, and now we just have the technology to support those tendencies. Mm -hmm. So something else, else he talked about that I didn't include in the quote, he talked about how 
We've always wanted to share pictures of our lunch on Twitter. We just couldn't do it before Twitter existed. Like we've always been these self-absorbed people and we've always cared about other people's gossip and everything, but now we just have the platforms to exploit that. So maybe there is an upward trend in isolation and like selfishness and everything, but it's just because it's more visible now. Um, so he also posed a counter argument of sorts to the idea that um, we are digital natives and we are, because we're digital natives, we come well equipped with this understanding of how technology works. So here's what he has to say. There, again, it's complex because people who start off at a younger age using certain technologies may develop either certain kinds of skills or even deficits in skills, uh, mm-hmm. technical skills, which could carry with them further. So, you know, a lot of people were interested around the time that mobiles were diffusing in Japan about like what they were um, sort of thinking of as these digital natives, people who are like born into that technology and so wonderful at it. Right. But then, as there is more research on this, they're finding that younger people actually, in some ways, have have technical deficiencies because they don't really understand how the technology works. They just know if I press this button, it's going to send a message. Right? There's mm-hmm. no other deeper understanding than that. So the next question is: How do you think? the social interactions of Generation Z are being developed with this current age of technology, as well as with the pandemic. Right. So to pull another quote from my interview with Jeffrey Bose, he talks about how within his field, it's a big question of if technology is prevalent because of the specific generation or if it's because of the specific stage of development that people are at. And will our technology use change over our lifetimes? So here's that question that he posed. So one of the questions that researchers are thinking about sometimes is, is it the case that when you have a younger generation adopting new technology that it influences them for the rest of their lives in ways that's kind of unique? Or is it that they're likely to adopt the technology because they're at a stage in their life where, you know, especially if it's a social technology, they're forming new relationships, they want to be social. But then as they get older, potentially have children or, or have a job that's a little more stable, then they just don't need that technology as much and, and the way that they communicate will, will change. Mm-hmm. Um, overall, I think there's probably more support for the latter mm-hmm. uh, um, sort of scenario that yeah, like things will just sort of change. People themselves change over time. It's not like one generation is totally impacted by something and then that's, that's it for them, you know? It's a really interesting like intersection between psychology and technology. Like I don't really think about that. Like when I was taking AP Psych in high school, we learned about the different development stage stages of humans' lifetimes. And this is definitely where as like teenagers were in the stage of like a social identity crisis and trying to figure out who we are as people. And so it does make sense that we're using all the platforms we can get our hands on in order to figure out who we are and talk to our friends and form opinions. But once we, we become more secure in who we are, it does logically make sense that we won't need as many avenues. Yeah. So I think I have a more kind of, uh, rational point of view on these things um 
As in, I think the usage of social media or these things generally is done um, to serve a purpose or because it benefits us in some way. And generally, for example, um, teenagers or uh, people in their 20s or young kids use them, you know, to go out, socialize more, um, try to, uh, as you said, try to figure out um, their identity, um, figure out what they're interested in. Um, also play games, you know, because um, these things are interesting at that age, like playing games, uh, looking at memes and all that stuff. Uh, but I think also when you grow up, these things become less appealing to the person themselves. And that's why I think the usage of social media kind of decreases. But I think it's also dependent on how technology advances during that time. Um, Because we see like specific advancements right now with regards to like LinkedIn, other things might be created by the time we're like 40 in our 40s or 50s that will serve as a purpose to use social media. So I think as long as there's um, a benefit to using it, people won't be against it. Um, And I, I think it's less of like, will just be less interested in social media. I think it will just be, we have nothing on there for us to be interested in. Um, and and you see also a lot of people like use Twitter and stuff like that. Uh, I know a lot of like uh, uh, scientists and uh, uh, medical doctors, they use Twitter a lot and they connect over it um, and meet new colleagues. So I think kind of that idea is kind of expanding um, and it depends on the uh, opportunities that are available, whether it would be useful to use it or not, I think. Yeah, I think that's not really something we're thinking about right now. And it's interesting to think about the future and how we're sort of going to evolve. I, It's hard to see us n- taking a back seat in technology as we're growing up and not being more involved in the media. and Or at least like a, di- a different type of media than we're seeing now. So I don't know. I just, I really can't see it. But you know what? When it happens, maybe we'll do a part two when we're all 50 years old. I would love that. That'd be amazing. Um, So yeah, moving on to another kind of idea about how social interactions of Gen Z are being developed during this time. Uh, I got the chance to interview Ethan Zuckerman, who is the author of Rewire, Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. He has taught at the MIT Media Lab for the last nine years, and he ran the Center for Civic Media. He's moving to University of Massachusetts Amherst to run the Institute for Digital Public Infrastructure. So on top of that, he also has a son. And so this is what he said about his son's usage of technology right now. I have a 10-year-old son. Um there is no way he would have survived the pandemic without Minecraft and not just without the game, but he has a circle of four or five close friends who he is interacting with um, Mm -hmm. over audio chat while they roam together in the same Minecraft world. And it's a, a remarkably healthy form of interaction. Yeah. As well as this, Brendan Smith really emphasizes the message that we're using technology technology as a way to care for one another. And before quarantine, or in some cases, lockdown, we were nurturing our relationships and protecting one another in person and in real life, quote unquote, settings, whereas now we're just doing it all online. So it goes back to what, a little bit to what Bose said, where it's like, we were building relationships before the same way, but now we're just moving it to an online platform. I think what's important to highlight is caring for one another and and how 
care has been framed by technologies, um, by their affordances, and how that's affected us over time, and uh, how people also try to uh, recapture, you know, not just the means of production, but the means of caring for one another. Um, so I think that's really important to highlight uh, for for any work that 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 deals with problems of social isolation or depression or anxiety uh, in relation to technology. It's it's important to highlight how how are we going to care for one for for one another, right? How do we um, establish better relations, uh, better communication? And I think it's really interesting to think about as well because. I feel as though the way we're interacting with each other online is more bolder than what we would actually do in person. So I, I'm on Twitter a lot and I see a lot of people who kind of go at it on Twitter, like as you do, and just talk about their personal opinions and really just stand up for one another and what they believe in. And we're not, nobody in real life is going to go start an argument and like have a whole bunch of people jump in and say, Hey, you're wrong about this. This is my experience. And you really shouldn't talk to him like that. That's what we like to think that we would do. I haven't seen that in real life, but definitely on social media platforms, we have, we have a way to be kinder and implement more of what we'd actually do. Cause it's like just an, it's a reaction, like liking, disliking, reposting, retweeting. It's a reaction to what we actually believe. So we're seeing more of ourselves through social media than in real life where we're more filtered. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I've never considered that perspective on like being able to express your more true self over social media because mm-hmm. we always hear the things about how everyone's fake on Instagram, everyone is using this for their own social advantage and it can lead to cyberbullying and everything. Mm-hmm. And you definitely need to consider those negative implications of being able to kind of hide behind the screen. Um, but I think it is true, especially with right now, like with the Black Lives Matter movement, you see so many people coming forward and expressing beliefs that they probably wouldn't have felt comfortable enough to express in real life. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's definitely an upside that a lot of people overlook. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's um, it, it's 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 not like this. The I I believe that it's not like the internet usage. To some extent, it definitely did, um, but that internet usage kind of led to people having different views or like more radical views. I think it's just that it's given them a platform less than. Um, like kind of changed the way they are. I think these kind of things were always just there. Um, But the ability to say all this stuff online and for people to be there to support you and you also maintain your, uh, maintaining being anonymous, I think adds to the courage for someone to go out and say something like this. Um, And I think like even, for example, people are like shocked. Oh, how are like, there are some people who believe in a flat earth or something like that. It's these people were probably always there. They just were never, no one, was able to go out and talk about it because they thought they were the only one. And then mm-hmm. you find forums online. It's like, Oh, we're, we're flat earthers. And then you join. And it's just kind of like, yeah, there are other people like me and, and you become more vocal. Um, it's just the platform that is given to them, you know? Right. I guess the question is, do we really want to know about how many flat earthers there are? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think I would, to be honest. <laughs> um, so another more negative 
well, yeah, completely negative implication of quarantining and technology reliance for Gen Z specifically is the mental health effects. Um, I was able to talk to Doug Fagan, who is the director of psychological services at the Lab School for Washington, and he sent me these quotes about his work with young people. So he says, for young people who might have had some anxiety or depression before the pandemic, it has increased their sense of isolation, reduced their motivation, and often exacerbated their symptoms. Many kids and teens rely on their relationships with teachers to motivate them to work and set goals, and these relationships have suffered greatly during the pandemic. And for those kids and teens who are motivated to achieve, the pandemic has removed so many of the activities that they enjoy and has left many of them feeling stuck and unable to move forward. Many of the young people that I work with have struggled with loneliness, reduced motivation, and sadness. Some high school students' anxiety symptoms have been so impacted by fears about getting the virus that they have refused to leave their homes for days at a time. So I think it's somewhat related to technology use and that even though we are isolated right now, we do have these platforms to communicate with others. But I think these platforms in, in and of themselves can also contribute to negative mental health because there's this constant pressure to be online, to maybe be talking to people who don't always make you feel good about yourself. And what you're losing is those in-person interactions that do reinforce positive uh, mental health. So I think it's important to remember that. Yeah, definitely. And I haven't really had any personal experience with this, but I can definitely see how being by yourself in these online spaces sort of exaggerates the loneliness and reduced motivation and sadness that you'd be seeing. So as opposed to being in a community of people who who believe in the same thing, it's easy to get lost and not sort of find a stable group and just be... I guess they're on the platforms observing and not really participating. Right. Or even falling into like, a like you only see one voice being expressed online, which we'll talk mm-hmm. about later in this episode. But like when we're at school, we are able to like pick up on conversations from people all around us in the room mm-hmm. and we're able to approach people of different opinions. Um, Whereas online, you really funnel yourself into the content you're going to be exposed to. So if you're not actively looking for better things, you might have some issues be exacerbated. But Mm -hmm. that's for later. (laughs) Our next question was, how is technology bridging a gap but leaving people unfulfilled? Yeah, so Ethan Zuckerman had an interesting take on this, and he describes his day-to-day life. In a funny way for me, um, I'm finding that I'm often in more places virtually in a day than I ever would have been physically, uh, that it simply wouldn't have been physically possible to do all the different presents that I'm doing. So I think for all the things that many of us are feeling, Zoom fatigue, frustration about being locked in our houses, um, this whole experience would have been a lot more difficult uh, without the internet. You know, we've been able to to reconstruct a reasonable facsimile 
of many aspects of life right now. Um, there's things that we're all missing, but frankly, we're going to find a way to send most people to school, even if it's from their bedrooms. Um, most of us are maintaining some semblance of a family and a social life in ways that just would have been impossible 10 or 20 years ago. I mean, it's really depressing to think about what if this had happened 10 or 20 years ago and we didn't have these modes of communication. We wouldn't have been able to start this podcast. We wouldn't have been able to keep in touch with our friends from university. Um, so even though there's no right time for a pandemic, in a way, this was the most appropriate, most ideal time. Absolutely. And Brendan Smith said the same thing about Zoom burnout and this phenomena of being isolated. Um, there are new specific phenomena, but they're similar to old phenomena. So, I mean, one example that I was going to bring up was Zoom, right? And how Zoom is sort of this thing that came out of nowhere um, overnight, and then we all embraced it and accepted it. And it's only been, what, three, four months of lockdown here in Canada, and people are already experiencing Zoom burnout, right? So we're tired of laggy video conferences. We're tired of the lack of presence of other people, all the added work that goes into uh, our meetings with people, our uh, social interactions, if we're doing them over video conferencing, uh, all our work that would normally be done in person that is now done through video conferencing. So um, I think this is this is this is all thing. This is this is all stuff that we've seen uh, come up in the past, but. I, I would probably argue that COVID has uh, exacerbated sort of generalized conditions, right, of precarity or instability or uncertainty uh, for certain vulnerable populations, especially. Uh, I think, you know, what what were more generalized, uh, low-lying conditions are, are now becoming uh, more apparent in the mainstream, at least, right? He just talks about how there is a pressure to stay connected with other people, but at the same time, it's really tiring and very wary of just knowing and being aware of the fact that you'll have to stay connected, just not in the way that you, you'd like to be connected. Yeah, and Ethan also builds on that idea about how... Um, being on the same platform constantly, it affects what we really remember after all of those interactions. What we get virtually is still so different than what we get physically. Um, if we did this interview sitting together in a studio, you know, the experience in many ways wouldn't be different, right? We'd both be talking into microphones. We'd be making eye contact. There would be a record of mm -hmm. it. I think we would remember it differently. I think we would remember the experience of being in the same place very differently than we'll remember a virtual experience. I would go as far as to say that we're probably not going to remember this conversation as well as we would have remembered it had we been physically co-present. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it's that the channel is thinner. I don't know if, if I'm still very aware of being in my kitchen and you in your living room or wherever we are, but one way or another, this is is not the same as this and right. it's 
it's an interesting gap. It's a really, really interesting gap that, that I think people haven't quite figured out how to bridge yet. Yeah, I think having all of your conversations on the same platform in the same manner kind of makes it all just blend together. It's, it's a different form of sense memory. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, now that I think about it, I should probably just like move the different corners of my house for each of these conversations right. uh, in, in the hopes of holding on to a few more details of each of them. Um, and I think that this is really relevant for us as we go back to university online. When most of our classes are, are online, it's going to be hard for us to remember the educational material as easily as if we were in a physical classroom. And so I know I'm definitely worried about staying like interested in what the teacher is saying over Zoom and being able to retain any information that they give us. Yeah, I've already heard from my friends how it's like really hard to just like stay awake during lectures when you're literally just in your bed, just on your computer. And maybe you should probably shouldn't be on your bed, but right. But like, how are we gonna wake up? Like, that's my biggest <laughs> issue. Like, my motivation to wake up was to get to class on time, but now yeah. I just have to sit up. <laughs> sit up. Yep. Yeah. So then Brendan Smith also reflects on this, saying. He doesn't think digital interactions will replace real life interactions. I don't think that digital communication is a replacement for real life, quote unquote, real life or, or in person social interactions, right? Like um, me and you, even though the connection is good, talking like this, it just isn't the same as, you know, being able to sit in front of one another. Uh, actually be able to read each other's body language to actually share a space, for example, um, it's just not the same, right? There's no way that it can, even with VR and, and a lot of stuff that people want to tout as, as a technological fix to um, real social interaction, I don't, I don't think we'll ever really get to the point or anytime soon. So essentially, we all need face-to-face interaction in, in- in order to thrive as human beings. So if anybody's worried about a digital revolution, maybe something like the Matrix, maybe like Terminator, maybe both, rest assured, because I don't think that's happening anytime soon, at least not in our lifetime. So yeah, I think we need both technology and in-person interactions to really balance it out and make progress. Yeah, I completely agree. And Jeffrey Bose reinforces that idea in talking about how we've kind of lost out on the opportunity to form new relationships during this time. You know, forming relationships online, it doesn't seem to happen that often for most people. There's definitely exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like we know, online dating, for example, people don't necessarily form, but they find other people online. So the online is sort of useful in the formation and at least finding people. Um, So you have a bit of that. You have some unusual situations where people are like really into something, like they're really into Dungeons and Dragons or something, and they find an online community of people because there's no one locally close enough to find. Mm -hmm. Um, So that happens. But those are all kind of unusual cases. So in this pandemic, it's almost like it's a very unusual situation. And so it may be that some people have 
found ways to form relationships online. Um, but I would suspect that for most people, they haven't gone out and formed new relationships online. Mm-hmm. Um, that the that mobiles and and, and um, internet connected computers have been ways that they've maintained relationships and and maybe gotten some support from people that they already know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in this case, you know, it's been kind of it's probably been very helpful to have these tools, um, but at the same time, they haven't necessarily made it so that we can sort of continue on in terms of forming new relationships. So for other things that we're missing out, like other things that technology can't replace fully, one thing is traveling. And here's what Ethan Zuckerman had to say about that. You know, as someone who's used to being on the road all the time, I'm going more than a little crazy um, being home this much. And, um, you know, video is great. Video chat is great. Um but I don't think you're ever going to replicate the sensation of stepping out onto the streets of an unfamiliar city and smelling food from a food cart. But I also think that the pandemic has been a good reminder for us all that a mediated existence is very different than a, than a physical one. So yeah, also in addition to traveling, something that I kind of think about a lot is how in real life we have all these moments where we just bump into people or we see a sign on the subway and then we try some new food, like all these things that randomly happen to us that really affect our lives. And I didn't realize that this was the word to summarize that, but serendipity. And Ethan Zuckerman's last chapter of his book is all focused on serendipity and how online platforms have tried to recreate that in a sense. So here's him describing that. The real world has a lot of opportunities for serendipity. Um, you get on the airplane and you start talking to the person in the seat next to you. Um, you know, you bump into someone in a crowded market and you start up a conversation. Um, digital spaces are not always as good at serendipity. And part of it is that there's so much information. If you could bump into anyone at random on Facebook, it probably wouldn't be a very good experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I predicted in Rewire, which was written in 2013, well before the pandemic, I think at some point we're going to have to really think about systems for serendipity. How do we engineer those sorts of chance encounters? Um, we've had some early versions of those systems. Um, when you go into Netflix and it tries to recommend you another movie, um, Mm -hmm. that's an attempt at engineered serendipity. Uh, when you're on Spotify and they try to take you from one song to another song that you might like, that that's an attempt at engineered serendipity. We may need those systems to introduce us to people and to help us meet different people, Um, Because this could get really boring if we're talking to the same people for the next couple of years, which might be what happens. Yeah, it's hard to replicate that, especially when it's um, it's calculated. It's not like something that flows naturally. And now more than ever, we're seeing that technology isn't a replacement for real life. I kind of viewed this whole quarantine time as like a pause on life. Like I Mm -hmm. feel like yes, I'm able to do things, like I'm able to create a podcast, I'm able to work on research, but 
in terms of moving forward in my life, I don't really feel like this has been the best time for that. And I'm kind of just waiting to hit play when I'm back in Toronto and start like being introduced to new people and everything. But of course, we're not really at that moment to hit play. Listen to our last episode to know all the health reasons why we're not at that moment. But yeah, I think I don't view technology as a substitute for real life. This is the end of part one.